Hey guys, Lucas Curcio here at Method Ministries and welcome to another episode. I'm excited because I have an author here who wrote this awesome book, 1000 Years with Jesus. And you can see it's Matthew Bryce Irvin, if I'm pronouncing your last name right. Yes, that's correct. Yeah, so thank you for this book. And yeah, go ahead and introduce yourself to our audience. And tell us who you are and what you know what you do. Well, first, thanks for having me, Lucas. I'm just really uh, humbled to be on Method Ministries. Of course, as you said, my name is Matthew Bryce Irvin. I throw the Bryce in there just so if you do a search, it won't come up with uh, various other Matthew Irvins of some of decent repute and some of ill repute. So just to <laughs> make it clear. Um, but as for me personally, you know, I'm, not, I'm nobody important. Just uh, I try to be a simple servant of the Lord and I try to not take myself too seriously, but take scripture and discipleship work very seriously. Um. As far as what I do, well, I'm a guy at a place, like a lot of people. Yep. I, I kid, but <laughs> so I, uh, I'm lead pastor of Oakfield, Alabama Baptist Church in Oakfield, New York. And that may sound a little strange, but in at least in Western New York, a lot of places are towns and villages somehow simultaneously. So Oakfield and Alabama are, are two different places, but we're kind of in a place where they overlap. So that's why the name of the church sounds strange. Uh, I teach some theology courses for Tyndale Seminary, a lot of introductory stuff like introductory to hermeneutics, um, prolegomena. And I'm an occasional author. Uh, yes, I, I authored 1000 Years with Jesus. Um, I contributed to a textbook called What is Dispensationalism? Hmm. And my contribution is if the body of Christ does not fulfill promises to Israel, how are we to understand how the new covenant has been inaugurated with what at least pretty soon after it's inaugurated was a mostly Gentile body? How are we to understand how this works then? So comparing Jeremiah 31 to New Testament fulfillment, uh, does this really work with dispensationalism? And, you know, I give my two cents with some uh, documentation. Uh, I have a new book coming out sometime this summer. It's yeah. called... The Divine Messenger, Appearances of the Son of God in the Old Testament. So it is about Old Testament Christophanies. Uh, it looks at a lot of Jewish writings about how do they understand verses that seem to discuss Yahweh on earth. Uh, I look at a lot of early church sources and, and I cite some Puritans and it's fascinating to see so much uniformity on understanding somehow Yahweh was on earth, even though you cannot see Yahweh in heaven. And the conclusions they come to very much support the idea that it must have been the son of God. Hmm. And my website's appleye.org. Let's see anything else about me. Uh, I have one living child. Nice. Um, yeah, he's, <laughs> yes, he's 13. And I've been married for 16 plus years. I hope I get that right. It's been a while. Wow. Congratulations. I just entered my, my first one year anniversary. <laughs> oh, wow. Excellent. That's great. Yeah. Uh, also, too, I see that Michael Brown wrote the forward for this. Are you guys affiliated, uh, like like through friends, or is he, is he um, help help uh, inspire the book in any way? I would I wouldn't say he helped inspire it. We're just we get along pretty well. Uh, gotcha. You know, I, you almost have to say this in the modern age, especially in theology. We don't agree on everything. Of course, yeah. I don't agree with myself on everything from day to day. But uh, I find him to be a faithful servant of the Lord and. A lot of the communities I've worked with in the past, not as much anymore just because of where I've moved, uh, a lot of Jewish communities. And so 
we have a lot of mutual friends and that got us closer. So just because he lives in North Carolina, I'd say we're not really close. But if I called him right now, he'd probably answer. So uh, we're, we get along. Um, we communicate regularly. Oh, wow. Man, that'd be awesome. Maybe one day, uh, you know, you and him could be on the show together. <laughs> oh, yeah, it'd be great. Yeah, it'd be pretty he's, cool. He's very gracious. He might do it. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, just to clarify, uh, um, you were, you know, just for our audience, you know, because usually we talk about the millennial, they want to know, well, what kind of millennialist are you? So you're a pre-millennialist, but for audience, would you classify yourself as a dispensational pre-millennialist? Uh, to be a pre-millennialist, as far as the timing of when Jesus takes the church, I don't think that necessarily must be before the tribulation. But I also don't necessarily think it's the U-turn model either, mostly because of John 14, 2 and 3. It seems to be he's saying he's coming to take his church, his bride, to be where he's going, which is heaven. And so I don't know how that would fit, but that doesn't logically necessitate it must be pre-trib either. Gotcha. For all I know, it could be a few days. He, I, I'm not sure. And first, First uh, Thessalonians 14 doesn't seem to me to describe the second coming itself. It seems to describe some appearance in the air. And I know it's an appeal to silence, but it's interesting that it doesn't discuss a return to earth in that passage. So uh, my brief answer on the timing of the rapture is not really sure. And I'm not very dogmatic about it. Okay, no problem. Yes, yeah. you know, sometimes it's best to be that way, you know, to not take a firm stance just because, you know, we want to make sure that we're, you know, believe in the Bible and not just yeah. trying to commit to a system. So, you know, I appreciate you being humble and, 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 and you know, just, you know, being honest with what, what you, you know, see and possibly can see elsewhere. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Yes, that's important to do that. Well, uh, what was the reason for your book, really? You know, or the purpose? Like, what did you want to communicate by by writing this book? Well, I think probably a good twenty years ago, at least, I just started to get into this idea of the millennium as a transitional time in history, where the Messiah would come to Earth. He would reign and he would fulfill all these prophecies I was reading in the Bible. And this would be a really good time for those things to find their fulfillment. And only then would he create a new heavens and new earth. And that really helped me to understand large swaths of scripture, passage after passage, especially in the Old Testament, that just didn't seem to fit anywhere else unless you allegorized it. And I don't like that because I like, I like to think the Lord is not trying to trick anybody with scripture. So if he tells us something, we have to ask, how would the original audience have taken these words? And if it's in one way, how are we allowed to radically change it? Because there's no way God would have meant that originally. And so for it to have some secret meaning that could only be understood hundreds of thousands of years later, it seems to me that means he deceived the original audience. So if you took Ezekiel, the last several chapters, and Jerusalem is the capital of the earth or Zechariah eight. Mm -hmm. It's hard to believe they wouldn't have taken that in a normal way. Yeah. Hard to believe they would have thought, you know what that really means? That means in the future, a bunch of non-Israelites will come together to form a new body. And what the prophecy we're being given is a picture of that. That's really hard to believe they would have thought that. <laughs> and so therefore God would have deceived the Israelites in Ezekiel's time, just for example. And so the millennium helped me understand the scriptures as one larger story. And it, it really helped all these passages that are tough to figure out where they go. Because they don't, we have a lot of passages that don't make sense 
to be fulfilled before Jesus returns, and they don't make sense in new heavens and new earth. So what are you going to do with those? Well, we need some kind of transitional time for them to fit in. And and I thought that was pretty cool too, because you know you mentioned that a lot of times too. You know that you know that that flow and that pattern in the scripture is like, okay, what about this time period? Where does this fit if not in the interval between the the second coming of Christ and the new heavens and the new earth, which is the recreation? And and I think that's a strong point because you have like Isaiah sixty five, you have sin being mentioned there, right? So it was like, where where does that fit? Oh well, there's an interval, and that brings consistency to 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 the scriptures now, where you can say, okay, this is the millennial period. And this is the new heaven and the new earth. And now we have, again, that consistent pattern through the scriptures where there's no contradiction between the two. Right, exactly. And yeah, of course, one point. and Jewish thought on the matter was that there would be a coming messianic age. And yeah. so you can read the Old Testament and go, wait, what is the prophet talking about here? This is an odd transition. Well, we think, whether we know it or not, we think like Greeks because we're Westerners and mm -hmm. we're influenced by Greek logic. And it's not that the Hebrews are illogical. It's just that the way they like to discuss things was talk about the current age. And, but at the same time, sort of have one eye on the promises that would later come. So if you read the prophets like that, you can say they don't need to say, OK, starting in the next 20 paragraphs, I'm going to discuss the Messianic age now. Like if you're an original Hebrew reader, you would have gone, oh, he's talking about his time. And now he's juxtaposing it with the coming promises of God being fulfilled. And so when you read it like that, it starts to become a lot easier and you don't have to try to play games with everything. I think that's a, yeah. And, you know, just on that point too, I think it's very obvious. And I know all millennials will, will, you know, admit this too often that the old Testament prophets, if you took them at their word, it is yeah. premillennialism. And I think it's easy to see that the old Testament prophets, again, like they were believing and expecting a millennial kingdom or a messianic kingdom. You know, you know, they didn't use the word millennial, but messianic for sure yes. on the earth with the Messiah being the one who inaugurated that kingdom. And, you know, I think, you know, there's no way around that and unless you, you know, use that spiritual hermeneutic where you just abandon that original thought of the author and what they were looking for. Right. And I think it's important to note that premillennialists, too, believe in spiritual blessings, but we don't think of spiritual blessings as divorced from literal reality, literal fulfillment. It's not just on its own. Spiritual blessings happen because there are physical, literal blessings that the mm -hmm. two always go together. Of course, most notably, Jesus's literal resurrection allows us to have all these spiritual blessings, but it's not the two are uh, united. They're, they shouldn't be understood as separate things. Are there any, um, so how would you say, because, you know, you know, usually people will maybe argue that it comes down to Revelation 20 about the millennial. So like, how would you, you know, answer that objection? Like, you know, how does the Bible as a whole teach premillennialism rather than just, you know, the accusation, oh, you guys only hold into one chapter, which isn't true. And you right. actually read that in the book. Uh, yes, that's, I hear this criticism a lot. Well, <laughs> you're really just debating Revelation 20. And don't you know, Revelation is a book with a lot of symbols. Of course, the implication being you can't understand it. That's almost what they're saying. Yep. Um, they never come out and say that because <laughs> at that point, it's like, well, why bother studying it at all? But it's true that Revelation 20 explicitly tells us how long the Messianic age is. That, that is true. Now, I'm even open myself, even though I take the Bible literally, that it's not even exactly a thousand years. Even, I'm even open to these criticisms that maybe this just means a long period of time, to which I say, very well, maybe. Maybe it's not that specific. But I think the idea is it's an epoch and 
we now are told the Messiah returns, Revelation 19, even Revelation 4 and 5 start to discuss Jesus reigning or the Messiah on the earth with the saints ruling on the earth. Mm -hmm. And we are given a timetable until the new heavens, new earth in chapter 21. Okay, so we're told, all right, the Messianic age, the, the rule of the Messiah is a thousand years. So whether literal or not, fine, it's still a transitional time. Now we look throughout the Old Testament and we it's true that we're not explicitly told that, although not to get into it too much, there there was Hebraic thought that the Messianic age would be a thousand years, even before the New Testament is written, mm. because you can see it in the book of Jubilees. The idea was they argued, and by the way, I'm not even saying this is necessarily the case, but a lot of ancient uh, Hebrews argued that Adam dying in that day also meant he didn't live to a thousand. Mm, and yeah. so if mankind could live a thousand years, it would demonstrate that Adam's sin had been defeated. And then there was speculation that perhaps the Messianic age, if you could just make it to a thousand, it demonstrate you've broken free of the hold wow. of Adam. So there's a relationship between old Adam, new Adam with the Messiah and um, of course, original Adam. But I think really ultimately it's rooted in the covenants. So Abrahamic covenant, we're told Nile to Euphrates is going to be the land that Abraham and his descendants are going to inhabit and rule from. And God doesn't say, unless you, unless you screw up. No, he says, I will make this happen. And it never did. <laughs> so it just, I mean, it never did. They have a small piece of the Holy land right now, and they're having a hard time holding on to that as we know. Mm -hmm. So therefore it must happen. And yet it, why would that be fulfilled in the new heavens, new earth? Because that should be all God's people. It wouldn't matter that they have control of some land, just the descendants of Jacob. So it seems best that that would be fulfilled during the Messianic age. And so you see a lot other covenant promises like Deuteronomy 28 through 30, really Deuteronomy 29, you get the, uh, more of the, the promised land covenant, the land covenant. But Deuteronomy 28, you really get God's desire for the Israelites. He wants them to be the head of the nations, not the tail. And he wants people to look to them to come to know God. And that never happened. That they did a, you know, when they got back from Babylon with uh, Zerubbabel, I feel like that's the best they ever did. Mm. And they were mildly somewhat faithful for a few years and that was it. And so yeah. they, they never reached this peak. But even in that book, there was anticipation. Zechariah, of course, like I said, eight, but 14. God, Messiah, somehow Yahweh is ruling on earth. So we see this anticipated. Admittingly, we're never explicitly told a thousand years, but we're still given a time that must be transitional in yep. the text itself, well before the New Testament. I think there's, and, and there's no time where you can look back in the New Testament and say, that was the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, you know, um, as you mentioned, or this was a millennial kingdom. This was the kingdom of God on earth. You know, even if you go through all of church history up to where it is now, I don't think there is, you know, you anybody can say with a, with a firm consensus, yep, this is the fulfillment of it. Like we're yes. still in that waiting period for it. Right. And even if you're a post-millennialist, you're still waiting for that future dispensation of that golden utopian age on the exactly. earth. Exactly, exactly. So That's they themselves will say, look, didn't Jesus say uh, the kingdom is within you or in your midst? And I, I mean, I, I have a good answer for that. Of course it was because the king was there. That didn't mean he brought it about, but... They will, but then they will even later say, "Well, they anticipate the golden age." So even you think of the kingdom as some 
future thing. Yeah. You can't get away from it. And Acts 3, I mean, doesn't Peter say this in his uh, sermon to Israel? He says, my brothers, you act in ignorance. If you repent now, Jesus is in heaven at the right hand of the Father. He's waiting to come back and bring about all that the prophets have uh, foretold, all they've spoken. If you would just repent. What else does that mean other than the kingdom? Uh, yeah, I mean, you, you got to find some other fulfillment for that, which is, you know, then abandoning the text. Right. And that's really helped. I love that it's in Acts 3 because you'll still get some people, because I'll bring up Acts 1 and debates, and I'll say, you know, the disciples asked after a 40-day intensive with the risen Messiah, will you now bring the kingdom to Israel? And he doesn't say the obvious if the all-millennial position was correct, which would be, hey, stupid, didn't I just tell you for 40 days what the kingdom was? No, he says, oh, I can't tell you that. But in the meantime, I'll bring you the Holy Spirit. So I have people say, well, Pentecost fulfilled it then. Well, no, because in Acts 3, Peter's anticipating it. He doesn't think of it as already happened now. Yeah, you're right. I mean, this is post-Pentecost. Post yeah. Holy Spirit's there, and he's still positing this in the future. Yes. That's a strong point. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure like, how, you know, how they would answer that. I've never had a good one, to be honest with you. Yeah, I, and I mean, I never heard anybody deal with that objection, actually, who's whether they're an amillennialist or a postmillennialist. And it's interesting because even origin, because the Greek uh, for restoration in Acts 3 is a very uh, esoteric Greek word. I'm going to butcher this. A popkatastasis hmm. uh, based on recollection. And even origin said this refers to not only the kingdom, but a return to Eden. And so... This is, um, and, and he was very big in allegory. And even he was like, well, this is a special word for something that will happen later. So, yeah, it's very difficult to get around and say that's happening now. Yeah. Way. Speaking about origin, uh, one of the things that you did in this book, and I love that, is that you go into the early history of premillennialism, you know, in terms of what the early church fathers believed. So can you, you know, explain that? Because I think, I think that's so important to see because you have this apostolic succession being taught like you know you have disciples of john yes. being taught premillennialism and i and i think that you know that's a killer argument and you know you know it has to be dealt with because you know i know the you know the exact uh you know people will say oh that's tradition well if if you have them saying hey john taught me this yes. john who wrote the revelation yes. i think you have to pay attention to what's going on here so can you just like go over that early faith of, of the premillennialism in the church fathers? Sure. Um, if we, let's, let's discuss the anti-Nicene age. And for uh, your listeners, that refers to the time before the Nicene Creed, but after the canon was finished. So we would say 96 AD to 325. Mm -hmm. During this time, you see very prominent, prominent premillennial belief. Uh, they refer to it as uh, Kiliism, meaning thousandism, but it was the same idea that they anticipated that so many of the prophecies about the kingdom would happen after Jesus returned, and then, but they would be fulfilled before new heavens and new earth. So, premillennialism, as we would describe it today, as far as apostles of John, that's probably the most notable in that. Papias was a very strong premillennialist, and he was a direct student of the Apostle John, and Polycarp was a premillennialist as well. And that really makes, is it true that their words are not scripture? Yes, that is true. 
But you have to, they're about as close as you can get because their teacher wrote Revelation. Yeah. And it's if they both got it wrong, they're very bad students. And how could they get this wrong? They knew him personally, what he meant by this. And so Papias, he was such a strong premillennialist that later uh, church father Eusebius, he was an amillennialist. And Eusebius, this is centuries later, mocked Papias because he was a premillennialist. So it's, there's no denial. Well, it's hard to say what, it, what he really meant. Well, later on millennialists would, were trying to undermine him already. And of course, Polycarp, very, of course, one of the most famous church fathers we have. He may have been referenced as the uh, angel or pastor of Smyrna. So he might mm -hmm. even be mentioned in Revelation. That's how famous he is. But yes, uh, student of John the Apostle, and of course, we have a very famous church father, Irenaeus, who was a student of Polycarp. And he's very, he's a very sincere premillennialist as well. This is not to mention people like Justin Martyr, Lactantius. So big names that taught premillennialism. Whereas I'm not even aware in the first or second century of any church writing at all that flat out extols all millennialism. Now, I'm sure there was non-premillennialism. I'm just not aware of any writings on that matter in those first two centuries. And I think that's very notable. Yeah, you mentioned that in, in the book where there's there's no document to your knowledge. And I don't know if it's to anybody's knowledge of anything different other than premillennialism. Yes, there were non-premillennialists, but there yes. weren't any documents saying it. The closest hmm. thing we have is Justin Martyr's own words criticizing people who weren't premillennialists. So the only <laughs> proof we have is someone criticizing that belief. Yeah. But, and, and again, you know, um, I think it's really cool to see it because, you know, as you mentioned, you know, you, you know, as I said too, is John, the apostle who wrote Revelation, he had two, two disciples saying, hey, this is what he taught us. So, you know, it's like, okay, what do we do with those statements? Either were they lying or were they telling the truth? Right. Both are problematic, I think. And yes. there's no, you know, you know, like there's no good answer, you know, like I, um, I don't know if anybody who would say they're lying, well, then you have to have the evidence to show that they're lying, which, we, we, you know, we don't even have. Right. And these are some of the most respected Christians of all time, seen as very humble men. I mean, Justin Martyr got his name because of how he was, how he died. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't think this is a very dishonorable person. He could be a, he could be a little um, over the top in his writing sometimes, but who can't be? So, <laughs> all right. Did they even believe too? Um, just to clarify that they even believed that the Antichrist was future, and that you know, um, I think it was Apollos as well as Irenaeus. They, they believe that Daniel's seventieth week was future, so seven-year final tribulation. So this is, you know, this isn't even like you know dispensationalism. So even if we're not a dispensationalist, like this is just still early Christian belief that there was a future coming Antichrist and a future seven-year tribulation. Oh. oh yeah. In fact. It might even be the case that Irenaeus, well, I shouldn't say this, but he talked about, he talks about the Antichrist extensively and against Heresies Book 5, if your audience wants to look that up. But he really goes into it quite a bit. But yeah, it was a very common belief the Antichrist was still coming. In fact, Irenaeus briefly discusses how, why it wasn't Nero and how people made that error, which I have to laugh when I hear, you know, some preterists today speculate on, on Nero. Really? That's yeah, that's amazing. Um, I didn't know that he even went up against that that uh Nero belief, you know, which is preterism essentially. Right. He well, he was 
he thinks, and I'm not saying this is true, but Irenaeus at least thinks it's possible, the mark of the beast through Gematria, uh, the alphanumeric code of using numbers and letters, he thought that maybe that meant that the Antichrist name would correspond to 666. So he tried to mathematically figure it out with Nero, and he goes, no, not him. Plus, that wouldn't make sense anyway. He didn't do the things the Antichrist is supposed to do. And it's sort of an offhand comment. So I don't think he was really responding to a widespread belief, but it's almost like he's just checking names off the list. Oh, okay, gotcha. Yes, that's interesting to, to, to you know see that you know play out. How did then, um, you know, when did the, like amillennialism come on? Because I know the second biggest thing is amillennialism, not not postmillennialism. You know, that came third. Yes, um, I, I really think if you want to get a structure to it, it probably started with Origin, and not to. And yes, he would technically be an amillennialist in that he would see these prophecies as fulfilled in the current age, but he's not like amillennialist today. He thought he applied these prophecies almost as moral teachings for us. They didn't really represent things that amillennialists say. So even he's kind of a weak person to pick out as a starter. But I think his hermeneutic was, and this is a very simplified version, if I don't understand a verse, it has a secret meaning, and I'm going to come up, I'm, I'm going to use my imagination. I figured out what it meant. He's very, very into allegorization. And he had this student, Dionysius, uh, and he was very prominent in making allegorization acceptable in the church. So a lot of Christians were led away from taking scripture literally, and they started to believe it had just secret allegorical or spiritual meanings that you could figure out through prayer and philosophy and you mm. could figure out the real meaning and you could see how this is very tempting to use this method to understand difficult texts so if he reads standing on earth and he's forcing people to come worship him or he'll punish them and he won't let rain fall in their land you could see how if you're a follower of origins method you would go i wonder what the allegory is here because i don't believe that's literal that's too hard to take as literal it's too hard for me to understand in my world. Yeah, what do you do with it? Right, exactly. Um, so I think the, that those are two big things. Number two, even fairly early on, I'd say late second century, early third, you really started to see a criticism that premillennialism was a Jewish idea and that a kingdom on earth where the Messiah reigns and he crushes the other nations with a rod of iron is a Jewish concept. And the Jews are Christ killers. Ergo, their eschatology can't be right. Which, um, I, I love Jewish people, but I'm the first to admit they're wrong about some things, they're right about others. I don't know why you have to <laughs> choose. But, you know, fundamentally, the, the Bible was, for the most part, written by Jewish men. So our Messiah is Jewish. I don't know if it's a, it was a wise idea to say, because this is Jewish, it's wrong. Isn't our faith Jewish? We are right. <laughs> and the irony is, of course, that a lot of covenant theologians will say, I am a true Jew. I think they misinterpret it myself, Romans 2, but they'll say, my heart circumcised. Right. So why do you have an, a problem with Jewish concepts then? Like, it's yeah. Just, yeah, it's just, they got to pick and choose. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like a, a friend of mine, Mata Balliston, uh, kind of well-known Messianic Bible teacher. He says, you know, you take a lot of um, all millennial texts or uh, covenant theology texts, you look at an interpretation, and if Israel was being good, like in the Old Testament, 
they would say, oh, see, it's the true people of God, the church, the body of Christ in the Old Testament. But if Israel was being sinful, they'd say, see, that's the Jews for you. So oh. you saw this attitude start to develop where you're picking and choosing things. And of course, anti-Jewish sentiments are on the rise in the third century. And another, another issue was, yes, especially by the third century, this idea that Christians were teaching that a Messiah was going to come and destroy the Roman Empire was making life hard on everybody because the Romans didn't want to hear this mm. naturally. It was a threat to them. <laughs> so by the time you get to Augustine, and he was a premillennialist when he was younger, which is surprising to people. I, I've got a quote from him here if you want, because that's hard for people to believe. But he moved away from it. And I, I think part of it was he didn't want to be militant against Rome myself. Now, now he says he moved away from it because he thought that the premillennialists were too carnal, that they anticipated physical blessings and that a Christian should be concerned with spiritual blessings to which you, you read this in the city of God and you can't help but say, yeah, but what premillennialist only wants physical blessings? Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah. There's no reason to separate these two things. But yeah, huh. Yeah. Um, I didn't know. Um, I guess I knew that he changed his beliefs. I wasn't sure about his eschatology beliefs. If he just always believed the, you know, amillennial position. I didn't know he changed from pre to, to a. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, huh, that's interesting. I, I can read this quote from him. If you oh, want. yeah. 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 Go ahead. He, he wrote this in the city of God. He wrote this. There should follow on the completion of 6,000 years as of six days, a kind of seventh day Sabbath in the succeeding thousand years. And that is for this purpose, the saints rise to celebrate this Sabbath. This opinion would not be objectionable if it were believed that the joys of the saints in the Sabbath shall be spiritual and consequent on the presence of God. For I myself too once held this opinion. But as they assert that those who then rise again shall enjoy the leisure of immoderate carnal banquets furnished with an amount of meat and drink, such as not only to shock the feeling of the temperate, but even to surpass the measure of credulity itself. Such assertions can only be believed by the carnal. They who do believe them are called by the spiritual Kilius, which we may literally reproduce by the name millenarians. Hmm. So he's saying, I believe this until I realize carnal things are bad and you shouldn't want to enjoy carnal things. And I'm more spiritual and more mature than that. <laughs> that's my, that's a paraphrase. So, and then you can see him just go away, right? Cause he, you yes. know, he, he's coming from this premillennial position. Well, where did that came from? Well, early church. Then he's just departing from it. And then you can see this trajectory go away from, you know, um, how do you say Kyleism or child, childism? They, uh, they pronounce it Kiliism. Kiliism. But they spelled ch, so that's why it's a little okay. What um you know just because also like in the book you talk about what the millennial will be what uh, be like. So you know what are you know what are the things that we can look forward to? Because you know as we talk about this, it's not just something that we're not going to actually touch. You know we're going to actually experience it as believers, which is you know exciting about you know that's exciting to look forward to and hopeful for us in this living in this world. So like you know what are the some of the things that the millennial will be marked by that we can look forward to? Well, we're essentially, if you wanted to say it in brief, it's pretty close to Eden again. Hmm. I wouldn't say it's quite Eden. We're promised, I mean, if just for an example, um, of course, there's a famous uh, Isaiah 11 that describes the conditions of the Messianic kingdom and how animals are not violent towards one another. There's not a fear of death. 
but you also see in Ezekiel 47 this river coming from Messiah's home that brings the Dead Sea back to life. You see trees of life growing everywhere, fruits that heal people. So we have this sort of lofty, majestic descriptions of creation itself being restored. But at the same time, and this is why it's important to note this, even in that same chapter in Ezekiel 47, it'll say the Dead Sea comes back to life, except for one small section, which is still dead. Hmm. Uh, meaning this cannot be the new heavens and new earth. Yeah. So it's interesting that it's it's way nicer than it is now, much better because the Messiah is present, yet it's not 100% restored. Also, the scripture we have prophecies mentioned, there'll be wastelands that will that will continue until the end of this world, um, such as in Babylon, which probably applies to Mystery Babylon or something. So it's not all perfect, but it's a lot better. My own speculation, Lucas, is yeah. that the millennium in some ways is the opposite, going in the other direction of the time after the flood. So there, after the flood, I'm sorry, the time after the fall to the flood, things are pretty nice, actually. They're pretty mm. good. Uh, people are living a long time. You go back and read, a lot of yeah, people are true. making over 900. Yeah. I suspect that the millennium is the it's going in the opposite direction. So Messiah returns and now things just get better and better and better and better. People are living longer. Creation's being restored. We read in Romans 8 that creation itself longs for our revealing where we're in glory with the Messiah so that creation itself can be restored. But because it is a transitional time, it's still not perfect. But it's nicer than now. <laughs> yeah, I have to look forward to. I think that's really cool too. Look at like how you mentioned it, um, in the book how you know um, as you talked about earlier, the Messiah period is one thousand years, and the first Adam he lived to nine hundred thirty years. So like you know, man was falling short of that millennial period, and then when you get the parallel with the first and second Adam, you do see this fulfillment of Christ. Taking you know, taking us to the, to the place that we should have been as as a creation of God that the first Adam failed, but the second Adam will succeed in. And I think that that's a really good parallel that I never you know saw before. Right. So uh, the idea is that the millennium proves and this is in Jewish thought and as well as Christian that the millennium will prove that Jesus is the new Adam. Amen. Wow, that's awesome. What, uh, what do you say to people who say, you know, does any of this matter? You know, usually, you know, you know they say, uh, you know, the famous, like, like I'm a pan-millennialist, so we'll all pan out in the end. Like, you know, why does this, this uh, not just debate, but this, you know, study of the scripture matter? Yeah, I mean, first off, I mean, this is uh, the very breathed out words of God meant for us, whether it immediate, directly applies to us or not. I mean, we know from 1 Corinthians 10, I mean, all of this is written for our benefit. So it's it's worthy of study just for that. But also, uh, believing in the millennium, I find is very comforting to a lot of believers because it's, it's very well and good when you're in that place in your life when academics interest you and academia interests you. And I believe that's when a lot of Christians find all millennialism or post-millennialism more appealing because the non-literal almost takes a more intellectual jump. Mm, yes. And they find it appealing. But there, there are times when people lose a parent suddenly. And you go then read Isaiah 11 or Isaiah 65, and it doesn't comfort you very much to go, well, these blessings are fulfilled right now. There's not a lot of comfort there because you see your dead relative. 
you see him in this casket and he loved Jesus and he died at 50 because he, uh, he had a heart attack. So there's just not a lot of comfort there. But if you believe it's literal, you know that this age will end, Messiah will return, and we can expect a time when we can be with him in glory in contradistinction to the unbelieving world. Where, yes, it's true, the amillennialists can say, well, I anticipate the new heavens and new earth. I agree with that. That's true. But there's there's no contradistinction between us and the unbelieving world at that point. I don't know about you, Lucas. I want to be vindicated after we constantly get mocked by the world for trusting in the Bible. Yeah, I want justice. Yes, and I want a time of vindication. Otherwise, it's Jesus' return in the new heavens and new earth enjoying him, which is, of course, wonderful. But there's no time when we're seeing our king take care of business, which yeah. I anticipate in the scriptures. I, and I and I really do look forward to when Jesus is going to rule them with a rod of iron. Like no more voting, no more Congress, and you know it's going to be the best thing ever because Jesus is the best ever, right? So he, it's going to be His law, and you don't have to worry about votes. Just that's it, and that's going to be amazing. Like one king, and he's a monarch, but he's the best person. You know, I remember John MacArthur says a monarch is the worst person to have if it's a wrong person. It's the best thing to have. It's a right person, and Christ yeah. is the best ever. So yes, give me a monarch, give me Christ the King over all all the nations, and that that is that's going to look you know that's going to be something to, to look forward to, and I can't wait to be in that kingdom and see that justice and vindication as you talked about. Oh yeah, amen. Well said. Any final words you want to leave our audience with? Um, you know, I'll I'll put your book in the distinct in the distinction in the description for them so that they can you know purchase it. Well, you know, um, first I just again I want to just emphasize that a lot of the issue of premillennialism isn't really just rooted in the millennium. Mm -hmm. uh, really, premillennial thought comes from how do we approach scripture? How do we approach God's word? And I believe in a literal, historical, grammatical hermeneutic, which means in a nutshell, uh, we of course, we should pay attention to normal use of language. That doesn't mean everything is really, really literal. Yeah. Like, when Jesus says, I am the door, I don't think he has a handle on him or hinges. <laughs> yeah. Or if he says, I'm the vine, I don't think he has leaves on him. But in the context, I know what he's saying. But generally, things are literal. And of course, context allows for it. The grammar and the history of when these things are said matter a lot, too. They're, they're not just incidental. So if something's said at a moment in time by God to a given audience, the, the rule of thumb is how they would have taken it is more or less how sh we should take it mm. because he would not have deceived his original audience. So to me, the millennium is just indicative of it comes about by reading scripture in this way, taking scripture more or less normatively. I'm not trying to read it through some lens I've created. And when we do that, we come to we come to premillennialism. So it's just indicative of how we should take scripture. So I just want to encourage everyone to take scripture that way and read it in that way. And like I said, I also have found belief in the millennium helps you understand scripture as a whole. It's not just mm -hmm. Revelation 20 yep. and it's encouraging and it's exciting to now finally understand Old Testament passages that may not have meant, meant much to you. Did you grind your way through Isaiah just to say I read it? Well, maybe go back and read it again and say, oh my gosh, maybe I now understand how this chapter is fulfilled because I don't have to try to just make sense of it anymore. I can, it has a literal meaning to it now and it can be exciting. Yeah. Amen.
thank uh, thank you so much for your book and thank you so much for you know for you know for spending time time with us uh you know and going over this you know really you know awesome exciting exciting truth truth of scripture and, and everything so you know you know thank you again uh matthew for being here with us oh it's my joy thank you yeah and to our audience thank you for watching if you could uh like share and subscribe that'd be great until next time take care